Turn to Psalm 91. Psalm 91. It's really good to see you guys again. And we welcome you back with a, uh, a really thick and hard subject. Sometimes you have to speak about things for which there's just so little speech that suffices. Psalm 91. like I got it as high as it goes. Sorry. Here we go. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, that's his wingtips, and under his wings you will find refuge. His Faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your right side, ten thousand at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place. The Most High who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near you. For he will command his angels concerning you. To guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent, You will trample underfoot. This is as God speaking. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him with long life. I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Now I'm going to reread portions of it. But this time... As I reread it, I want you to listen to it, not as though you're, you're sitting here in a comfortable seat in a Birmingham suburb, but as if you are living tonight in a tent city surrounded by the wreckage and rubble of Port-au-Prince, the sounds of children without their mothers, the sounds of mothers without their children in your ears. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. Really? You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. Really? 
A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. This is truly literal. This is true in a literal sense for many of these survivors of the earthquake. But what comfort is it when among the 10,000 who died to your right and a thousand more that died to your left, when among them were your children, your spouse, your parents? Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place. The Most High, who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. Really? For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Sounds nice. But what about those feet that were actually crushed by stones? As God speaking here, when he calls me, I'll answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him with long life. I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. It has to be hard to sing about God answering calls for help and granting long life when you can actually smell. 200,000 corpses of those who probably did call out and did not receive. I think it's appropriate if you're going to begin a series on God and natural disasters that you start off with a few questions. And, and here's one. Of, here's a question or two for us. Is, is our gospel big enough for the streets of Port-au-Prince tonight? Do you have a gospel that works in Port-au-Prince tonight? Do we have a theology deep enough for earthquakes Can our scriptures speak to Haitian children with crush injuries who can't find their dads? Do we have a God strong enough, a gospel vast enough, a Bible exhausted enough for Haiti? Some of you know I've been working on this writing project on cynicism. And the week the earthquake hit, I was supposed to finish up, write the final chapter. And... I'm writing the final chapter on on the project about why we should not be cynical about God when there's an earthquake. I'm writing the final chapter in a book about why we shouldn't be cynical towards the church. And yet, televangelists are making certain comments. In some ways, this earthquake's been a test for me. Because I want to say this to you. If, If our God is not as glorious as this earthquake has been devastating, then he ought not be worshipped. And if our Bibles cannot address the pain and the turmoil of Port-au-Prince, then it ought not be taught. And if our gospel cannot make sense in the ears of mothers digging through crumbled concrete for their children, then it ought not be proclaimed. If it only works in the suburbs, I don't really care for it. God and Natural Disasters, that's our sermon series. And we're talking about this because we do have a gospel big enough for catastrophe. Because we must claim a theology that is earthquake-sized. We do have a God who is big enough 
And we do have scriptures that can speak into the most utter reaches of darkness. Haitians cannot sing tonight Psalm 91. But there are other psalms they can sing. Satan once quoted Psalm 91. He quoted it to Jesus when he was tempting Jesus to jump off the top spire. Go ahead and do that because you know what? You're not even going to stub a toe. The angels are going to look after you, Jesus. They're going to come and they're going to keep your foot from hitting a stone. And Jesus cites another scripture to him. You shall not test the Lord your God. This shows us that you can cite something biblical and it be unbiblical that you cite it. There's certain passages of Scripture that are wrong for certain seasons. Patients cannot sing Psalm 91 tonight, but maybe they can sing this from Psalm 60. Oh God, you have rejected us, broken our defenses. You have been angry. Oh, restore us. You have made the land to quake. You have torn it open. Repair its breaches, for it totters. You have made your people see hard things. You have given us wine to drink. That made us stagger. And maybe they could sing. Maybe they could somehow reach down deep. Bring up enough hope to sing this from Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear. Though the earth gives way. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. God in natural disasters. We've got to learn to talk about this kind of thing, to talk theologically about it, because so often when the church faces something like this, either it has very it has very little to say or when it does speak. Sometimes we say things that are just really at the at best unhelpful. So we want to take this on and talk about it. <laughs> and it will be really hard. So welcome to UCF, everyone. Welcome back. We're going to give you time to actually ask a lot of questions yourself, bring some of your own thoughts. In a few weeks, we're going to have a theological coffee house. You'll hear more about it. It's on the same topic, God and natural disasters. Tonight, though, we begin this. We're going to study how we should and should not respond to unspeakable suffering. Let's pray. Lord, we... We're just treading on holy ground tonight, ground that is has your presence abounding on it, but also has minefields. God, I pray that we would teach carefully. We would talk very carefully about this. But show us, Lord, how to worship, even if it's in the dark. Rouse us now, Lord, to shake off our weak theology and embrace you even if you are frightening. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Turn now to Job. Job chapter 1, we'll begin at verse 13. The sermon tonight, this first one in the series, is Worshiping in the Dark. How should we respond and not respond in times of disaster? We're going to look at the life of a man who suffered from the effects of natural disasters, from their power, from their terror. 
And in the opening chapter of Job, we learn three things about him. I'll go through them very quickly. One, we learn that he is abundantly wealthy. We second, secondly, we learn that he is dearly in love with his children. And three, we learn that Job is the most righteous man on the face of the earth. There are not that many role models in our Bibles. A lot of flawed characters. I'd say Job would be a role model. In many ways, the most righteous man at the time on the earth. A wealthy landowner, a loving father, a devout worshiper of God. And in chapter 1, we're, we're giving a glimpse behind the scenes. We're giving a glimpse behind the cosmic curtain as they're pulled back for us a bit. We see Satan, behind the scenes, challenging God with this question. Does Job fear God for nothing? Look, of course, Job's so spiritually impressive. You've put a silver spoon in his mouth, God. You've given him everything. He's living the dream. He worships you in a bright light. But would he worship you in the dark? Would he worship you if he was living not the greatest dream, but his worst nightmare? Does Job fear you? Does he worship you? Does he reverence you for nothing? The entire book of Job is in our Bibles to ask this. Do we have such a vision of God that we can worship him even when all hell breaks loose on our heads? Job 1, we're going to begin in verse 13. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. That's how the scene is set. And it's a happy scene. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters. That's right. Your sons and your daughters. We're eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness, struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people. And they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground. Job tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground. He tore his robe, he shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. 
Job suffers loss from the hands of marauding militia groups, Sabaeans, Chaldeans, and he suffers loss from two natural disasters, fire from heaven and this great wind. It's the great gust of wind that must have surely given him the most grief. It knocked down a building onto his children and the crush injuries were fatal. The response of the most godly man on the earth. It's worship. And here is the most urgent point. For us to take from tonight. The most urgent point in how we should or should not respond in times of disaster. The only proper response to God. In any situation. Is worship. How should we respond to God in bright times? Worship. How should we respond to God in dark times? Worship. The response to God always, forever, is worship. But for Job, this isn't just any type of worship. This isn't put on your smile no matter what worship. This is robe ripped, head shaven, slammed to the ground. Worship. Job is worshiping in the dark. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan says, he worships you, God, because he lives in peace and prosperity. Can he worship you in the dark? Job will say in chapter three, the thing, pardon me, the thing that I fear comes upon me. What I dread befalls me. He's worshiped God while living the dream. Now, it's nightmare time. Will Job keep worshiping? There's a biblical name for worship in the dark, and it's called lament. Lament worship. This is a form of worship that that really seems quite absent from the suburban contemporary church. We sing our praise songs in major keys, don't we? For those of you who play guitar, you know what I'm talking about. G major, C major, throw in some E major there. We don't have many worship songs in the minor key. We don't associate weeping with worship. We encourage one another to take that frown off our faces and smile while we sing those happy songs about Jesus. We encourage one another to worship like this, to worship only in the brightness. And when, when, when we, when our dreams aren't really coming true, when we have nightmare experience, we don't feel like we can come and worship. If the only way you know how to worship is with major keys, is in the bright daylight, when you're healthy, if that's the only way you know how to worship, then how will you fare when Satan asks, does she fear God for nothing? Is his worship only as deep as his circumstances are good? Laments form the largest category of psalms in the entire Psalter. The worship book of the Bible, a third of it, are laments, lament psalms. We tend to think we can only show up for worship when we feel right in our relationship with God. When we've had a quiet time that day. But when we're sick, 
when we're struggling with our sin, when our relationships have soured, in these moments we tend to drift away, don't we? We, we avoid the sanctuaries. Yet throughout the Psalms, what we hear, not just triumphant shouts are coming out of those Psalms, not just melodious singing, but also there are desperate groans. There's discordant wailing. But it is worship for those that penned these poems, these songs. It's worship in the dark. Laments teach us that bringing our miseries before God When you can't even sing a happy song. How shall we sing the songs of Zion in a strange land? Psalm 137. Bringing those miseries to him is an act of worship. If there's a God-centeredness in your misery, it can be worship. Worship that comes out of the depths. Psalm 130. And, And I think that the most powerful worship of my own life has probably been worship. It's been out of the depths. And I would not doubt that some of the most powerful moments of worship on the face of this earth have come in recent weeks in the form of cries from out of the depths of concrete and rebar, worshiping in the dark. Think of Jonah worshiping from the darkness of the Fish's belly. Think of Jesus in Gethsemane's darkness. Not my will, but yours be done. Think of Paul and Silas in this Philippian jail cell at midnight singing hymns of all things. It's biblical that we worship when we hurt, when we ache, when we're stricken with our sinfulness. And it's also biblical that our worship will sometimes actually hurt. We worship when, we, when it hurts and sometimes it hurts to worship. Abraham on Mount Moriah with his arms stretched high over the sacrifice before him. That worship hurts. Jesus crying out lament solemns on the cross. That act of worship hurt. But even so, the only proper response to God is going to be worship. Sometimes that worship is going to look like College students jumping up and down, joyfully raising their hands to heaven. That's great. Sometimes it's going to look like that, but sometimes it's going to look like this. Worship in the dark. This is from a day of mourning to place in Port-au-Prince. It's worship in the dark. How should we respond to God in times of disaster? It's worship. So how do we respond to the victims of disaster? That's what we move on to now. How do we respond to the victims of the disaster? Some of this is pretty clear. We know from both Testaments what you do for those who are hurting, right? We know from the parable of the sheep and the goats that Jesus tells in Matthew 25, we know what to do with those who are unclothed, who are hungry, and who are thirsty. We give them drink, right? We give them food. We clothe them. In many ways, we know exactly what to do. The book of Job shows us what we should not do. Provides us some bad examples. We find these examples in Job's wife and in Job's friends. 
Moving on from the text that we read, if we were to read more in chapter 2, we, we find that Job's sufferings, they extend beyond the loss of his property and his progeny. They extend beyond that because Satan is then given permission to touch him. To touch his body. Loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head appear. It's so awful that even his wife, she, this is her response to him, Curse God and die. Just put yourself out of your misery. Curse God and die. I'd say this is bad advice. The laments in the Bible, whether they're in the Psalms or in Jeremiah, they're in Job or whether they're in Lamentations, they're intense in their complaints to God. They're they're very raw in how they address God. And you have to be so careful. But never, never are we permitted to curse God, to blaspheme Him. No misery is so severe, no disaster so seemingly unjust that God deserves to be cursed. Lament, yes, weep, yes, cry out in agony, yes, but we cannot curse him. Here's what Job says to his wife. You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. It's in vogue to raise the fist up to heaven, isn't it? Hey, I'm just, I'm just being real, you know. So I feel so. I'm just being real with this. There are times when we can pelt the heavens with questions. But as Job will find out, as Job will find out later, sometimes God will pelt us back with questions we cannot answer. But we can say why. We can say how long, O oh Lord. But we cannot curse Him. Job's friends, other bad example. The reports reach their ears and they love him enough. They suspend their activities. They make the journey through the land of Uz to visit their friend in his suffering. It's noble. In that regard, it's positive. Their example is positive. As they approach his estate, though, they see something. They see something, something up ahead, something in the distance. It's out of place. It's odd. It's even macabre. Whatever it is, it looks somewhat human. It's writhing, it's, it's contorting, it's making awful sounds. It's scraping itself with this broken piece of pottery. The sight doesn't fit their worldview. This cannot be right. This kind of thing can't happen. God would not let something like this happen. They see that the thing writhing and moaning is their friend. This is Job. When you see extreme human suffering, it really guts you. It takes your breath away to some degree. You don't know what to do with it. I've not seen anything. Compares to what's been going on in Haiti. Probably the, the worst, most difficult human suffering I've seen. So when I was with my wife, we were in India. We visited one of the homes for the dying by the uh, Mother Teresa's order of nuns. And in the top floor of this, this building was the polio ward. It's where they kept the children who had polio. This morning, I uh, took my little boy for a doctor's appointment. He got four shots. They're immunizations. 
And he screamed. Louder than I've ever heard this little boy scream. But I was okay with his screaming, you know. Because he's never going to get polio. My kids will never, ever end up like the kids I saw on that top floor. Kids whose movements were inhuman. Because their joints were just so mingled and twisted in so many weird directions. But still, these kids, they were being cared for in a safe environment. The backdrop of human misery in Port-au-Prince, it's, it's been absolute chaos. And I imagine that the sight of Job and his misery was enough to disorient, to destabilize Job's friends. It just didn't fit for them. It could not be. Their immediate response is noble. They see him. They don't recognize him at first. But then they raised their voices and wept. Job 2, verse 12. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him. For they saw that his suffering was very great. They respond at first with weeping. with sharing in the misery a bit. They respond with silence. Good responses. Appropriate responses. Sometimes the last thing you need to do is to say something. When someone's really in agony and in pain. But to weep with someone. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. They do this. But their response changes when Job opens his mouth. He starts cursing. He doesn't curse God. He curses the day of his birth. But his friends are so unaccustomed to the dark. They're so unaccustomed to the language of lament that they can't help it anymore. They can't keep quiet anymore. They have to speak. They have to open their mouths. Eliphaz is the first one. Who can keep from speaking? He says in chapter 4, verse 2. You've run your mouth enough about God and what He's doing to you, Job. I can't keep back from speaking. Like so many Christians today, these friends of Job, they can't keep quiet for very long. They can't weep for very long. They can't share in the suffering for very long. Soon they have to extricate themselves from the suffering, cease identifying themselves with the victims, and then present themselves as theological experts who have simplistic formulas and trite snippets of comfort. God will never give you more than you can handle. Who wants to go and preach that tonight in Port-au-Prince? I dare you. I used to treat the speeches of Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and Elihu in the book of Job. The speeches of his friends. I used to read those as sensible theological commentary in times of suffering. What they said, it made so much sense to me. And it echoed what you hear Christians saying to one another all the time in times of suffering. But then one day, I actually read all the way through the book of Job. And I realized that at the end, God says twice, twice of God's friends, you have not spoken of me what is right. The worldview of Job's friends, it's so fairy tale, And their theology is so shallow. They envision a tidy world and a God who behaves himself. He follows certain rules in this tidy world. God doesn't permit great winds and marauding bandits unless the victims are sinners. Good little boys and good little girls, they always have health, wealth, and prosperity. Job, if you're suffering, you need to have a quiet time. 
Eliphaz says something like this. You need to have a quiet time. You need to repent of those secret sins that you obviously have. Or else none of this would have happened to you. We don't live in a tidy world. A world dismembered from its creator is not tidy. And we don't worship a God who behaves according to our tidy rules. More on that next week. When we hear reports about these impossible things, about all kinds of just disasters, we, we, we tend to jump to a lot of theological conclusions. The idea of divine judgment comes to mind, doesn't it? Almost instantly. We've read our Bibles enough to know that certainly there are times when the Bible attributes natural, natural disasters to God's judgment. But as Elijah found on Mount Horeb, 1 Kings 19, sometimes God is not in the wind, not in the fire, not in the earthquake. And the behind the scenes glimpse that we get in Job shows us that that natural disasters, which bereave him of his property and of his children, they have nothing whatsoever to do with judgment. As a matter of fact, the only people who seem to be judged in the book of Job are those who attribute the calamity to God's judgment. You have not spoken of me what is right. Job's friends jump to this simplistic theological formula that disaster equals divine judgment. Disaster equals divine judgment. And the tendency to jump to this kind of conclusion, it's already happened in the story. Look back to verse 16 in chapter 1. This sole surviving eyewitness reports to Job, the fire of God fell from heaven. Now, this is an unnatural disaster. We know this from the behind the scenes glimpse we've been given. We know this. But this eyewitness is making a theological conclusion, isn't he? He's subtly attributing the source of that fire to God. It's fire of God that fell from heaven. We sometimes call natural disasters what? Acts of what? Acts of God, right? And such extraordinary violence and damage. It's so beyond our capacity to deal with that we, we develop a weak theology, I think, to cope with it. If we can pinpoint catastrophes to the simplistic theological formula, disaster equals divine judgment. If we can just do that, then we feel that we can kind of control our fate a bit. Bad things only happen to bad people. Eliphaz is going to rhetorically ask of Job a little bit later. Who was, that was innocent ever perished? The innocent don't suffer, Job. Good things happen to good people. If we can claim that disaster, disaster victims suffered because they deserved it, then we can just feel a lot better about ourselves. Sleep better at night because you know they had it coming. To this attitude in the book of Job, God says, you have not spoken of me what is right. Don't turn there now, but at some point, I'd love for you to look at this. Luke 13. Verses 1 and 5, 1 through 5. Jesus is approached by a group of people. They tell him about this 
awful act of state-sponsored brutality. Pilate's murdered. A handful of Galileans is apparently in the local news. They come, they give Jesus this report, and they clearly believe this idea that Job is written to confront. They clearly believe that obviously the victims must have had it coming to them. They must have been sinners. Jesus responds to them, Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No. Jesus then brings up a freak accident of a building that toppled and crushed people. He talks about the Tower of Siloam, killed 18 people. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, but unless you repent, you likewise will perish, as my wife says. I deserve natural disaster. We all deserve natural disaster. There are calamities that are all throughout the Bible. Death tolls abound. Our scriptures are not naive to the pain and suffering of our world. But not all disasters are intended for judgment. An earthquake actually delivered Paul and Silas out of that Philippian jail cell in the dark. It was with an earthquake that the angel rolled away the stone from which Jesus emerged Out of the rubble as resurrected Lord. You can't use trite theological slogans when it comes to the shaking and the heaving of the earth. You can't pretend like you know behind the scenes what's going on. I want to challenge us to just dispense with the weak, easy theology. If you if you have a shallow vision of God, you're going to only be able to offer shallow comfort. God will never give you more than you can handle. A surface deep theology leads to surface deep consolation. I'm sure God's got a plan in all this. I'm sure God has a plan for all this. Is that the way you comfort grieving mothers in funeral homes? We have to have a theological vision big enough for a God who quakes the earth with his presence, yet weeps in pain outside Lazarus' tomb. We've got to have a theological vision large enough for a God who may send drops of rain to judge the earth in Genesis 6, but yet who who sheds drops of blood as tears as he prepares to bear the ultimate judgment of the earth. Is your theology that big? Is your gospel that big? Do you study scripture as if it's that big? And here's how you know. Here's how you know if your theology is shallow. If we cannot worship in the dark. If we can't worship in the dark. And all we can give are trite little slogans. and Platitudes. Banal. Empty. Vapid promises to people. You have a weak, shallow theology. Let me give you a summary here of a message tonight. How do we respond to God in times of disaster? We worship, but it's not happy. Put on your fake face worship. It's lament worship. It's worship in the dark. How do we respond to victims of disaster? Silent weeping might be a good way. 
Should we never offer shallow theology represented by simplistic formulas that equate disaster with judgment? We don't tell people they can just curse God and die. In some ways, it's a lot easier if we could just take on this easy theology, you know? We could just, as a friend of mine says, turn the channel. You know, uh, we were at a conference, Crossroads Conference. Many of you were there. We were at this conference with a friend of mine who goes to Haiti regularly. He talked about this scene in the movie Hotel Rwanda where uh, th- this man, the hotel owner, is saying, look to a Westerner. Show, show the footage, show the footage, you journalists. Show the footage of the people over there. They're going to they're help. And the guy says, you know, what's, what, what's really the truth is that Americans are going to be sitting in their living rooms, eating supper, look up and say, oh, that's too bad, and then change the channel. It's just so easy if we could have a theology that permits us to change the channel. Just focus on midterms that are coming up pretty soon, or those papers that are due, or just get drowned in the syllabi. But we serve a God who beckons us into the dark. When he finally speaks in the book of Job, he speaks from out of a natural disaster. Out of the whirlwind, God spoke. We've got to have a theology so unsettled by this vision of God that yet he's big enough for when the earth quakes. Some of you, it's dark. It's dark for you. And I'm not trying to make any comparisons to what's going on in Haiti, but and I know for some of you, it is dark. Your response is worship. You can worship in your pain and in the awful misery of your sinfulness. You come to God and you worship. Even if all you can muster to say is, how long, oh Lord, that you have someone, that you acknowledge you have someone you can ask that to, is worship. So if it's dark for you tonight, worship. I'm going to close with a prayer taken from Psalm 107, 33. It's a prayer I'm going to be praying for Haiti. Please bow with me. He turns rivers into a desert, springs water into thirsty ground. A fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. He turns a desert into pools of water. A parched land into springs of water. And there he lets the hungry dwell and they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing they multiply greatly and he does not let their livestock diminish. Lord God, we want to come before you and ask that you just explode the narrow parameters of our view of you. I pray that you'd also reshape how we think we can approach you, Lord. I especially pray tonight for those who can't see any light. For whom the addiction is so severe. For those for whom the weight is just unbearable. 
I ask God that you'd show them, that you give them freedom to know they can worship you in such a dark place. We also want to acknowledge the Lord that in spite of the heart and in spite of the misery, you submitted yourself to endure the worst of it, to bear the brunt of it. And new life out of the tomb awaits. Pray this in your holy name.